still shaking out the rest. I feel rusty. Yeah. I think it's also because it's the first time I've kind of been back set up at my desk for a little while. Yeah. Like back in the apartment. So I'm like, I swear to God, every time we record, I'm in a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely feeling rusty this year. Welcome to episode 380 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Nice round number 380, Brian. How you doing? Uh, hanging in. Hanging in. <laughs> yeah, surviving. Surviving. You know, actually, that's kind of my go-to phrase. I'm, I might change it. Like, so at some point halfway through the pandemic, you hop on a call. How you doing? You'd say, uh, well, you know, given the circumstances, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I've just gotten gotten to the point where I just say, hanging in there and i've taken it offline as well you know you go up to the grocery store counter and they say hey how you doing today and i just say hanging in there how about you and i don't know if it's too negative or if it's kind of the right mix of it's a little positive it's 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 winking at the shittiness of the situation it it avoids having to say things are actually good like i'm having a great week you don't want to say that right I was watching a comic, like a stand-up the other day, and this exact thing came up. He was like, when people ask you how you're doing, there are two answers, fine and great. If things are going bad for you, if it's shitty, you say fine. And otherwise, you say great. Those are the two answers. Nobody actually wants to know how you're doing. Well, anyways, hanging in there. (laughs) How you doing, Brian? (laughs) Hanging in there. All right, cool. Well, we have a uh, we have an interview today. It's we been do. a while since we've had an interview. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for it. But of course, we've got a little bit of uh, stuff to get into before that. First, we have some new very important pixels oh, this yeah. week. New supporters making this show possible. Our first one, we got a shout out to Belinda Huey, who last week uh, this person's name on Patreon was. Bela, like it was a typo. B-E-L-E, yeah. B-E-L-E. And so we, we said it, we did our best, but then we got a follow-up that it's actually Belinda. So thank you, Belinda. Uh, also a huge shout-out to Nuzi Barkatali, Eugene Federenko, Gabriel Adorf, Mike Griffin, UX Vietnam. I think that's the name of an organization, not first name UX, last name Vietnam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> first name UX. Um, and finally, shout out to Sam Carden. These are all new supporters making the show possible. Thank you, Thank everybody. Thank you very much. Yeah, awesome. All right. If you didn't know, we are a listener-supported podcast, which means that listeners of the show actually make it possible for us to record every single week to pay for our gear, to pay for all of our subscriptions, hosting, editing, all this kind of software that it takes to make the show and, and make it sound good. And so if you've been enjoying the show, if you like coming back every week and hearing us, or even if this is your first time listening and you want to support us, we'd really appreciate it. It's possible by going to patreon.com slash design details. And for just a dollar a month, you get access to a new supporter only segment of the podcast called the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. (laughs) Uh, The sidebar is like an extra half of the episode. So we'll answer an extra listener question or we'll, we'll tell a design story or talk about a a new idea. Uh, it, it's really just the second half of the episode. So not today. Today we got a really long interview. So not quite half. Yeah. T- yeah. Today interview. Uh, but today in today's sidebar, we actually talk about 
whether you should learn Figma if it's the right tool to learn in this year, 2021. So if you want to hear us talk about tools and get access to past sidebars and future sidebars going forwards, or if you just want to support the show because you like like the way we sound, uh, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash design details, and it starts for just a, a dollar a month. So thank you everyone who supported us this week and to everyone else who's been on board supporting the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. All right, two quick bits of follow-up before our interview. The first one comes from Twitter. Divya Talk says... Uh, regarding our conversation last week, talking about having an online persona, Divya says, one of the things that I feel like why it's easier to praise someone who does just the work is because creative professionals have a myth that, quote unquote, doing the work is enough. We find it easier to praise those people. And I also think it's a bit easier to not be threatened by someone who has 100 Instagram followers but makes art every day versus someone who makes art once a week but each piece gets over a thousand likes. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe people are just jealous. <laughs> yeah. I think that last point is so interesting. Like if somebody is sharing all their work and the work isn't socially received, it feels more pure. But as soon as those that work gets lots of likes, the, the line between doing the thing for the right reasons and doing it for the likes starts to blur, mm. which is probably really frustrating for most artists. Um, but certainly for designers, like, no, I just want to share this thing. But it just so happens that people also will like it on social media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a certain critical mass point that you reach where it's like you could tweet out Kafefe and it'd get a million likes. You know what I mean? Like it's it, it, as soon as you have enough people following you that are into what you're doing, you can't trust that the response from them is necessarily accurate to the quality of the thing you produced. Ooh. I don't know. It's a, it's a, that's another little wrinkle on the thing. Yeah, lots of wrinkles. All right, thanks, Divya. Uh, second tweet follow-up comes from Michael Kneprath. We talked about writing and, and having a personal website, and Michael says, the bit about your writing voice changing I try to fight this every time and mostly fail every time. I want my posts to feel like long-form tweets. I have some advice here. Uh, just read your blog posts out loud. And if you wouldn't say it like that to a friend, then rewrite it. <laughs> um, it's hard because if you if you write something, you feel like it's in your voice. And then if you read it back, but you don't say it out loud, it's still in your voice. You're hearing yourself say it, but it's it's in this weird translation layer between being written on the screen and just happening inside of your head. Right. But if you read it out loud to whatever, your partner or your dog or just an empty room, just the act of reading it out loud, you have to hear yourself say really weird sentences mm -hmm. or say like, therefore, or <laughs> I don't know, just <laughs> Thusly, weird. Hence, yeah, yeah, exactly. Insofar um, as. Yeah, exactly. So read it out loud. But yeah, I like that idea overall, like having your writing just sound like a long form tweet. It's just like, yeah, it's casual. Just yeah. talking, just chit chatting on the internet. <laughs> All right, that's follow up. With that, let's get into our interview. Today, we're talking with Priyanka Kodakal, who is a design manager currently leading the consumer design team at WhatsApp. Before WhatsApp, Priyanka worked at Facebook on groups and before that on ads. Before Facebook, she was at Evernote and before that spent a long time in the nonprofit sector. So we talk about Priyanka's background, how she navigated Facebook, transitioning into WhatsApp. And I would say we spend most of the conversation talking about what the hell does it take to design WhatsApp? <laughs> yeah. Such an interesting product. Yeah. Uh, so we really appreciate Priyanka coming on the show. 
after you listen, if you enjoyed the show, we'll have a link to her Twitter in the show notes. Be sure to go tweet at her, tweet at us as well. Uh, let us know what you thought. I'm sure she'd love to hear any reactions or or even follow up questions. Twitter would be a great way to to get a hold. So uh, we'll have a link there in the show notes. Go follow on Twitter. And with that, let's get into our interview with Priyanka Kotakal. Okay, Priyanka, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I feel like it's been a long time coming because we've known each other at this point for like five years, but just overlapped a little bit at Facebook and then maybe long gap afterwards. So it's it's actually nice to catch up and almost do like a formal recorded like how did you get here kind of conversation. Yeah. We're going to end up, I think, talking a lot about maybe Facebook and, and certainly WhatsApp. But let's go a little before that. For people who don't know you, could you just introduce yourself and, and tell us what you're working on? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Priyanka. I'm a designer. Like I've basically been a designer my entire career. I went to design school, did the traditional graphic design, probably have a path similar to a lot of folks here, which is, you know, like graphic design, then web, and then somehow landed into product. Spent about six maybe eight years actually designing for nonprofits, which was really interesting. And, and I'm really hoping at some point I can go back to that. Mm. And then I landed up at Facebook in 2015. Brian and I started on the same day. Oh, really? That's uh-huh. awesome. Yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. It, it was such a big group. I remember so many designers and we created this little like soft group. We would just hang out and a bunch of other folks. It was, it was really fun. So at, at Facebook, I spent, I actually started, did a little stint on like the ads team for a little while, but then I moved to the Facebook groups team, uh, but it was really, really small and then worked there for like maybe two years, a little under two years, I don't know. And then I moved to WhatsApp. I started as an IC. Again, the team was really small, just a handful of designers when I started WhatsApp. I joined WhatsApp mostly because I really care about the product. I'm super passionate about it. it, I've been using it a lot. I might have even paid for it at one point. When I first joined WhatsApp, I remember I started working on like a really small project for managing storage. Uh, It was like in the settings. It was really deep. But it was a really good way for me to like just learn the WhatsApp culture, which was totally different from Facebook or any other tech company I worked at. I probably didn't mention this, but I did do a stint like a couple of years if ever known before I joined Facebook. But but it was just like a way for me to learn how to design at WhatsApp. And it was like really eye opening in a different way. But I did that for a while. The next thing I actually worked on was uh, WhatsApp group calls. It's been in the product now for a while. And then you know, a bunch of other things. I think the interesting thing about WhatsApp when I started was you just worked on anything. So I've worked on like the business, uh, the consumer features, API, like developer sandbox. Uh-huh. I don't know what mm-hmm. I did. I did something and I don't know if it even worked, but um, <laughs> So I did all of that. And then as we started to grow the team about a couple of years ago, I switched to managing, which kind of happened organically. But then I've been uh, leading the consumer design team for WhatsApp. I love it. Okay. We're going to dig into each of these things a little deeper. I think one thing that would be cool to understand is how you think about switching roles, because obviously you've navigated at this point sort of sectors, right? From nonprofit to to startup, then startup to big company. And then within that massive company, switching around between teams and products, have you noticed any themes around when or or why, like what builds up that causes you to want to change? You know, that's such a good question. I think 
I don't know. I, I'm like a terrible planner. I have I have like no goals. Like seriously, I have I don't know what I'm gonna do like next year, for example. Um, mm-hmm. I just I don't know. I'm very organic in in the way my journey has been, or even growth for that matter. I think the the two things that I really care about. I think one is just how interested I am in doing something, and when I feel like I've fulfilled that, like it's probably time to see if there's anything else. But oftentimes, I think what's just happened is uh, something has come up and I'm like, oh, cool. I'd like to like work on that. And I'm like, okay, I think I should make the switch. Uh, So don't think too hard about that. And I think this is the same pattern that's actually continued, like has been like in the nonprofits, moving to tech was more about just, you know, opportunity to do more like UX design at the time. That's what was the main thing. This is probably like 2012. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's any like real like hardcore thinking behind making the move or any strategy. Yeah, you're just going with as opportunities come and as you feel like you've done some work. Yeah, it's time to move on. What do you miss most about the nonprofit side? The nonprofit side, I think it's a different kind of reward. You're basically it's just so it's so you it's okay it's not user focused it's so people focused right you're trying to fix like a societal problem or trying to improve so the the nonprofits i've worked at have mostly been like education uh refugee health like that sort of thing like you're working toward a positive outcome from the start mm-hmm. so i think the way you think about those things is very different you have to like re- have really really strong empathy for people who are like completely not like you so I think sometimes I miss that part of the nonprofit land That's and amazing. the reward is, yeah. And the reward is just like more, it's more intrinsic if it makes sense. Like you get paid very little mm-hmm. or at least I got paid very little when I was at a nonprofit. Yeah. So it, it's really more about like doing the right thing and feeling like you're part of that. Does that make sense? This is like a broader problem with incentive structures in general, right? If you heard about somebody making a ton of money and they worked at a nonprofit, society would sort of frown on that. Be like, ugh, you're creating this overhead and preventing money from going to to the cause on the mm-hmm. ground. But we have no problem celebrating people who make their money at startups or, or big tech companies because it sort of fits into our idea of the way money just always gets spent. So I, I think that incentive structure is really unfortunate. And I hope maybe it will continue to change or or start to skew so that people could be well compensated and we, the nonprofits can attract the kinds of people who would be well suited to work on those problems but the compensation is like the last missing piece yeah i agree i actually think it's getting a lot better i have some friends who are working in nonprofits and i think there is a lot more you know i, I think they see the gap and the reason why people don't work at nonprofits right i mean the reality is like, even if you want to, you, you at least like the way I think about it is, okay, let me just do a few more years here. Then maybe I can go work at a nonprofit. <laughs> so I, it's, so you're right. I think it does. I mean, incentives is one part of the, the one missing piece for sure. All right. Well, let's zoom forward. Speaking of incentives. So you joined Facebook. We got to meet and work together a little bit. I laughed. And I think right around that time you were migrating yourself to WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was something that had been on your mind, like you were excited about it and had wanted to work uh, on WhatsApp for a long time. Was there a, a deeper reason there? Was WhatsApp particularly interesting for you? 
Yeah, I think like for me, it it was just more about. So I have the story I tell everybody, and I'm I'll just repeat it here really quickly. So I went to India. I go to India quite a lot. I grew up there, so I have family back there. I went to India like maybe a year before I started working on WhatsApp, and I like so I've always been using WhatsApp. I use it with my friends and family. It's always been one of those products where I'm like, yeah, of course, like this is a messaging app. This is what we use. It's a no brainer. But I think what really uh, got me excited, or like just it was just eye opening, was seeing how WhatsApp is used in India in like all these interesting use cases. You know, uh, people use it for like doctor's appointments, for job applications. Your your nearby grocery store, you could just WhatsApp them your order, and they would deliver it to you. So it's pretty like I don't know. I couldn't stop seeing it. Like once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. I was like, wow, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. And then I also had heard about WhatsApp's design culture and how they do like design and the intentionality and all of that. And both of those things, I think, just propelled me to explore WhatsApp. And I didn't even know if they had a role open when I came back and I talked to my manager at Facebook and I said, hey, I'd really love to try out joining WhatsApp and or interviewing. And I had to like do a whole interview and all of that. It was almost like joining a new company. And then I think they had like one role that opened up and somehow I got that job. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so I think there's two things there, right? There's the like the product scope and, and size and complexity. Mm-hmm. And then there's the more internal like design culture. So maybe we start with the product itself. I, I think, Marshall, you work at YouTube and we've worked at these big tech companies. And I think it really takes working at one of these places to understand or even like scratch the surface of the scope and complexity of building a product that is used by people in most countries around the world. Mm -hmm. So Priyanka, I'm curious, you know, you'd had this experience using WhatsApp and your family's used it and obviously you had context maybe from the the Facebook side, but Mm -hmm. when you started working on it, was there anything that was surprising to you? Like, oh my gosh, it's so much different than I actually understood or or there's more considerations than I anticipated? Yes, there were a few things. So this is actually how WhatsApp designed stuff. So when I started at WhatsApp, the first thing was there was no research. Whoa. And oh. I was like, how do we know we're building the right thing? Mm-hmm. And there's so much value placed on judgment and intuition. I mean, we di- I think we did have research when I started. It was brand new. It was very foundational. There was no like usability testing or any of that. So just like it took me a while to wrap my head around that. And I just couldn't put two and two together. I was like, how can you have a product that is so successful? Because it was really successful when I started. It wasn't like, it's not like a recent thing, right? It was after the acquisition, right? That was like It was after the, biggest, the acquisition. Yeah. yeah. And not have research. Yeah, yeah, that's really surprising. How do you know what to build then? Because I imagine that the U.S. product is different from the India product is different from the Brazil product. Like, aren't these things different? No, they're not. They're the same. Hmm. Oh, how? <laughs> okay, maybe I'll <laughs> keep going. Yeah, so um, I think that the thing I learned at WhatsApp is we do have a really strong, of course, now we have a lot more research and all of that. This is, I'm talking like almost four years ago. But there was a lot of insight collected from our CEO team. The CEO team, you know, gives us a weekly update on like the most asked questions or concerns, the tickets they're getting, uh, what we're seeing in app store reviews, that sort of thing. But I think like fundamentally, it's always come down to building or like solving basic problems really well, like really simplistically and elegantly, such that everyone can use it. 
so that was a new thing for me. I was like, there's no A-B testing even today. Hmm. So, so which means like you have to like start from a really good place of just more conviction, you know, around what you're building. So we typically build and ship products. We don't like test and revoke and that sort of thing. And Brian, to your point about, or your question about like different countries seeing different versions. So WhatsApp is a client side app. When we roll a feature out, we roll it out to everyone in the world. Mm-hmm. I think it's really difficult for a messaging app to have different features, like on a country basis or a different version, because it breaks the experience. So if you, if and a lot of the WhatsApp communication that happens happens across countries. So a lot of people in the US will use it with like their families in like Brazil, Indonesia, and in India, and so on. And you want to have like the same set of features, otherwise it just breaks. And the same experience because it's just like simple to build, maintain, and on principle. Do you, but do you ever discover maybe not even country specific, but more culturally specific, like this region or, or these this type of audience wants these specific features, and maybe there's a lot of them, right? Like even as you were describing, sort of the business use cases mm-hmm. in India around. I think you mentioned like booking a doctor or, or some like these more complex messaging businesses. Mm-hmm. Do you have to make trade-offs like when that's a really compelling flow, but it might complicate the product for everyone else in the world? Or, or do you have systems to bury that complexity or progressively disclose the complexity by maybe opting into certain features? Like how, to, how do you keep things simple, but also account for all these different cultural needs around the world? That is such a great and difficult question. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It Okay, so the way we think about designing at WhatsApp, right, is it's very rooted in like first principles. So oftentimes it's like for solving a problem that affects, let's say, 80% of our users, I'm just like making up this number across the globe. What is the minimum stuff we need? And so we try to build that first and kind of build it in a way that anyone who is, regardless of their their literacy levels, tech savviness, age, is able to use it. So the general belief is that if it works for anyone, it works for everyone. So that's one thing. So that is one of the constraints we we work with. In terms of business communication, so like for that specific use case, right, doctors and things. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, it's similar to a phone call. Like, just look, think of it as your analog phone, you know, just your, not even analog, just your phone call. Like, you don't have different apps to call different people or different features for calling, like a doctor versus a friend versus like a parent or whatever. So it's similar in that sense. And then for the folks who want to conduct business via WhatsApp, there is a different app. It's like the WhatsApp SMB app that people can use that has a few uh-huh. more features. Mm that supports like some of the use cases for businesses. Okay. That, that helps. Cause as you're like, yeah, I, I don't use a different phone app to call my doctor to call, versus calling a family member, but I have an app for my medical stuff, right? Like I might use one medical or, or ZocDoc or something like that. Like there is these bespoke experiences mm-hmm. for all these things in my life, which is actually kind of the funny difference between, I don't know, more like Western products versus, perhaps uh, more international products. Like if you look at the WeChats of the world where it's like these aggregations mm-hmm. of multiple applications into one app versus the US and like Silicon Valley is more, yeah, like There's lots of bespoke things. Exactly. Yep. 
Exactly. It's interesting because when you actually, so we do do research trips and we've been to a few countries and just like seen how people use WhatsApp. It is very different culturally from one place to another. But because the app is so basic, it's basically a communication app. It's got all the tools you need to communicate with another person or with another WhatsApp account. People just use it in very, very interesting ways Like you don't even think about it. So why do you think it is then that there hasn't been more, I don't even know the right word, unbundling or like splitting off? Like if the app is so basic and there's so many different cultural use cases, is it the case that in these places, this sort of local applications, local app developers have an advantage and are, are encroaching on WhatsApp sort of market share of communications? Or is it really just that the basics are so good that we never really needed these bespoke you know, one-off apps in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm going to hypothesize here. I don't know like what the right answer is. I I just feel like this comes down to how every product builds their product strategy. I think at WhatsApp, like just like we just prefer simplicity and building products that are more universal. So like some of our our principles for building anything, if it's it's the smallest feature is, is it universal? Is it private? Is it usable by everyone? So I think when you get those three things right, there really isn't like a need to build bespoke apps, but that doesn't mean you don't have extra features. So when you look at the attachments panel on WhatsApp, there's there's, there's a few things there. Then there's stickers, there's calling, there's like working on desktop Hmm. calling, for example. So there, there is room for improvement, there's room for growth, but I'm not sure it warrants a whole different app. And sometimes Mm. I feel like it's okay for people to use different apps for different things. So like when we go to Indonesia, sometimes I've heard people say like, you know, oh, I use WhatsApp for like close family chats and this other app for chats with my friends. And that's just how people, Mm -hmm. I feel like, create their audience. Uh, They separate their lives like that a little bit. So it's probably okay. Like we don't have to have every single user just use WhatsApp as you're describing like what's universal and usable and simple, that feels a little deceptive. Like certainly there must be so much more that goes into each of these things. I I remember joining Facebook and just being kind of astounded at the considerations for the number of devices, the age of devices, the number of operating systems, Mm -hmm. uh, people on crappy phones, right? Like, what goes into making something universal and, and usable and simple? All of the things you mentioned. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> tell, yeah, tell so, me more. How does that process actually look? How do you know that you've accounted for, for these things? Yeah, so I think one thing we do, at least try to do well, is dog food our own product mm-hmm. really well. So when we have a designer working on a feature, that designer is responsible for scaling it across all the different operating systems. We don't have like designers who are doing just Android or iOS or like, you know, another platform. And what that helps is you have a good sense of how your feature is scaling across the ecosystem. So that is one thing that's super helpful. And then be dog food like crazy. <laughs> like we we leave things in dog fooding for like weeks and months. And it, like we really use it a lot. And then it goes into beta testing, like a public beta for like a while before it's actually launched to the user. So we have a bunch of checks and balances to make sure what we're building is usable. People that aren't designers or aren't working on the product can actually, and and they're not talking about testing, like actually use it, like use it in their their actual situations, in their context. And it really exposes a lot of bugs. 
So for that reason, like we take the time we need to actually craft a quality experience. And when I mean quality experience, it's not just about like the UI or the visual design. It is about reliability. Like reliability is the number one thing. It needs to work in low, low bandwidth connections, old phones, landscape or portrait view, whatever else, like low literacy, accessibility. So all of those things have to be accounted for. So it takes a lot of time. Yeah. And is that just a, a, a big checklist that every feature sort of has to be run through before it's allowed to ship? Or how do you ensure that you haven't missed a step? You know, that's a really good question. And like a soft suggestion, I think we should have a checklist. No, we don't have a checklist. I think it's very cultural to WhatsApp. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who look for these things, right? So when we're dog fooding something. We also have a QA team that is like specifically looking for accessibility bugs or looking for, uh, you know, translation issues, that sort of thing. Then we make sure designers have all the devices they need so they can do their own testing, mm-hmm. engineering's doing their own tests. So, so there's a bunch of folks that actually just get together and do this over a period of time. They're oftentimes nine out of 10, I would say. Uh, once we start dog fooding, we have to go back and iterate a few things. So one thing we try to avoid is like having hard deadlines and things because then it just forces you to get stuff out without doing the right kind of testing. Mm, okay. I want to talk about that in a second. I have one more question mm-hmm. on like this this sort of process thing. Like uh or maybe this is even more like product strategy. Like when you have all of these considerations, like this thing has mm-hmm. to work on every device, it has to work uh on low bandwidth connections, low power, all all these situations. Does that ever conflict with sort of the broader product strategy? I, I could imagine things like you want to do more video calls or mm-hmm. live streaming or, or you know, there's the status feature where you can like update uh, kind of like the equivalent of stories, right? And as mm-hmm. you go more and more into video, photos, and richer means of communication, those product ideas do seem in conflict with some of the principles around maybe being low bandwidth or really fast on a slow connection. So how do you balance those? By having amazing engineers who make stuff work (laughs) on low bandwidth Mm -hmm. connections. No, seriously, I'm not joking. Like these are not edge cases for us. And we have to consider these while we are building products. So it's a combination of what is technically feasible, how far we can push the boundaries there. How can we keep it simple? How can we also innovate? Like, how how do we like add more features, make things richer? And there's just like new technology coming up every so often and we just adapt. And yeah, I mean, the engineers make the magic. Seriously, they just, Hmm. WhatsApp calls work really well on low low bandwidth, like video calls. They don't take up a lot of data. And that's another consideration. Like in a lot of the countries where WhatsApp is popular, data is really expensive. So you want to make sure that like we try to let people know, um, you know, how much data things consume when they're trying to send like a video, you know, download an audio file or a video file, like that sort of thing, because data is expensive. So we have to work with that constraint. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? It does. Yeah. And if you have great engineering foundations, it makes all these things easier over time. But I could still imagine like some wall where you want to do something high bandwidth or computationally expensive and you just recognize that some percentage of your users won't be able to use it or their device won't be able to handle it. 
And I don't know, like, does that mean you don't ship it or you've just accepted that there's certain, I mean, every tech company does this, right? It's just WhatsApp happens to have these principles of trying to be universal. Um, Mm -hmm. Or like, at what point do you just say, you know what, we don't support this type of phone or this age of operating system? So we do that. So we still support a lot of Android and iOS operating systems that go way back. Mm -hmm. But there comes a point where you like start to decide, like, you know, it's too expensive to support them. Most of our users aren't using them. So it does come down to what our users are using. So I'll give you an example, right? Like my mom doesn't use the latest OS on her phone just because she's just never thought about updating it. She's probably using like, I don't know, a couple, like two, three OSs back. Mm. So, and we have a lot of users like that who, who do use like old operating systems and we have to support those. So we haven't gotten to that point where we've had to say certain people won't get this at all. I think there have been some small features, but nothing significant where you would need to update your operating system. Yes, I mean, you do need to update your app every so often because there's new features you won't get if you don't update your app. But operating system, I mean, no, we still work within that constraint. I don't know. I think it would be strange if we said like only if you have newer phones or like most up-to-date operating system, you could use this. We've done that maybe for a couple of features, but for the most part, we try to avoid that on principle because again, like if you want to like leave no user behind, like this is something you have to consider. And I think the onus is on us on to like build an experience that will work for everyone. It mm. might be a little idealistic, but I think it's awesome. I kind of, I really dig that. All right. I have one more producty question before we get into like more designery stuff. So mm-hmm. this one is funny, you know, it, it kind of helped prompt this conversation on Twitter Someone tweeted at us, like, why is the chats part of WhatsApp the fourth tab on iOS? And I think that that is such an uh, interesting question because you look at the tabs and and for me, I see status, then calls, then camera, chats and settings. And, and for me, like my mental model of WhatsApp has always been chats. So every time I opened it, I'd have to like go to the fourth tab, which feels like the the wrong tab. And mm-hmm. so I realize, I think I might just have the wrong mental model for what WhatsApp is. So I guess, how do you think about this? Like, wh- what does the ordering of the tabs mean a lot for you and, and the team internally? Um, and do those get sort of reordered in concert with shifting priorities? Uh, from my point of view, it'd be like a priority towards uh, calls and camera, right? Yeah. So this question comes up a lot. <laughs> it's like... A little bit of a history lesson, but um, mm-hmm. so WhatsApp wasn't a messaging app to start with. It it was an addition to your contacts app on iPhone, which basically just said you would just see people's status. So if I saw like Brian or I saw Marshall, I would say you know you could set your status to busy, talk later, or unavailable, or like available to chat, whatever. Mm-hmm. It was basically um, a status app. I mean that's why the name WhatsApp. It's like WhatsApp in a way. Yeah. So you could just so you would know before you contacted someone or before you called or even SMS someone at the time if they were like available or not. Because I think one of the things Jan, uh, who is like the WhatsApp founder, talked about, and he has a really cool talk if you're interested in the history of WhatsApp on it's on YouTube. He talked about was like people would just do this thing where they were like hey, do you have a minute to chat and then do the, and then kind of send the message, that sort of thing, and then start the conversation. Yo, you free? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? 
So this actually took that away. It was like, so you could, you would know if they're free or not. And apparently it evolved into a messaging app just more organically when people just started using the status is like letting their contacts know that, hey, they're, I'm heading to a bar, join if you can, that sort of thing. That's crazy to me. That that seems like it's like a tail growing a dog. You know what I mean? It's like that's yeah. the big, big part. Like we're doing a status thing. Sure, that seems like it's relatively easy. But adding chat onto that is a huge increase in size, you know, or and scope. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think that was around the time where like SMS was just expensive. It would break up your messages and like cost a lot of money. And then I guess the, the WhatsApp, the original WhatsApp team figured out that they could like actually build a messaging service that would just use the internet. Hmm. And that's how it evolved. But then coming back to why it's the fourth tab, the, the original idea was to emulate the UI for the dialer, the iOS dialer. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and so, you know, where status is right now, that used to be a contacts tab similar mm-hmm. to the iOS dialer. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, and I think there were like fewer tabs. And then when they did chat, it replaced the, the actual dialer piece, like where you where you dial the phone numbers. And I think that's how it evolved. But I might not have the exact understanding here. And that's yeah. how like, it just stayed there. And and it's it's a muscle memory thing, right? Once you have so many users and they're just used to like having chats that you <laughs> don't want to move it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer, honestly. <laughs> like uh, it's just always been this way, so we're not going to change it. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, but then there's a little evolution, so it's interesting. Well, so I think this leads kind of perfectly into the next part, which is I think WhatsApp is very interesting from a design perspective Mm -hmm. because as long as I've used it, which isn't as long as it sounds like, you know, since it's been around, I miss the status only days. uh, And certainly I'm I'm just on my iPhone, not on Android. But in my experience working with it and, and touching it at Facebook, it's very sparse. It's simple. It seems to basically want to emulate the stock OS, right? So iOS, WhatsApp looks like iOS and Android, WhatsApp looks like material design. And I'm curious what you've experienced on the inside as sort of the philosophy for visual design at WhatsApp and what makes it WhatsApp versus being stock? When do you choose to design something custom and maybe add more brand elements or or bespoke things versus really just leaning on OS primitives? That's a lot of questions. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Why why is WhatsApp the way it is? (laughs) No, I I think it's it's good. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And and people ask this question a lot. In fact, when I joined WhatsApp, I had some distant relative ask me, why do you need a designer on WhatsApp, right? Mm. So anyway. uh, (laughs) Ouch, yeah. Damn, uh, burn. Totally. So I think it's it's where like form follows function. And the principle here really, and WhatsApp is a very, just very principles driven organization, like even design wise, product wise, that sort of thing. I think what happens when you have something that feels very, very native to the OS is it just like diminishes the learning curve that anyone will have to learn a new app. So for example, right, when something looks like most Android things, uh, or like material design, uh, like most other apps on Android, you give it to someone who is not very tech savvy and they can still use it. They don't need education. So one of the things WhatsApp doesn't do is user education. Uh-huh. And that's on purpose. Like yeah. that actually is a great reality check because 
the general sentiment is if you need to do user education on how to use a feature, don't ship that feature. So I think that really forces the simplicity. And and it just, there's something about the design. And, and I had asked this question, I think, when I started. And I was like, wait, why doesn't the brand show up? Why doesn't, you know, why is it different than the other apps that you see these days, right? And I actually got some really good, pers- I developed a good perspective on this, just like from research, from talking to people, from talking to who was the head of product at the time. And so there's two things that stood out. One is approachability. Like the app just feels very approachable, doesn't feel intimidating. There's not a lot of things moving. It's just, you know, this very simple, you open it, it's got this box, you type whatever you want and just send it and you're good. Um, There are other features if you want, but the base experience is very simple. Uh, Nothing gets in your way. And then the second thing, I think, you know, we've talked about this as designers in a lot lot of different contexts where you don't want your product to get in the way of the actual interaction that the user wants to take. So WhatsApp kind of gets out of the way. It's like you and the recipient, and we are just like the facilitator, that, that sort of thing. So that's another reason why there is not a lot of branding inside of the app. Uh, we try to do brand, I think, a little more based on, you know, just like more externally rather than in the brand, in the app. And there's like the colors match more of the OS styling. So it just feels like more embedded into the OS, that sort of thing. Does that answer your question, Brian? I probably missed some questions. No, it, it answers it perfectly. I guess from my experience, everything you said rings true. And I, I actually agree with most of those principles. And Marshall, maybe you can chime in here too, because I think there's still perhaps some frustration at having to design kind of two different apps. Like you're always having your Android mocks and your iOS mocks. And then mm-hmm. every year as the platforms evolve, you're kind of doing two separate things. Mm-hmm. And it's been interesting watching some of the other Facebook properties like Instagram and Messenger and even the Blue app sort of evolved to just have their own visual language that kind of looks the same on every platform. Like maybe the only key difference is some navigation patterns, but everything looks the same, right? So I I suppose there's tension for me there between the approachability, the simplicity, being easy to build, yet also having this massive design overhead of maintaining kind of two separate apps. Yeah, it is hard. It takes a lot of time. And we're not talking about two operating systems. We're talking about four to six. Oh, <laughs> even, even worse. <laughs> Look, I don't even know what the other ones are. Yeah. Windows? <laughs> we, so we deprecated Windows, but we have... Oh, yeah, yeah, Mac OS, have, Mac OS, okay. We deprecated Windows Phone, sorry. So we have like web, desktop, iOS, Android, and KaiOS. Don't even know what that is. Yeah. So KaiOS is, it's like a smart feature phone that's like really cheap and has good like internet connection whole different operating system you have to use like keys like hard keys to move around oh yeah i know what you're talking about yep yeah but it is picking up you know people are using it in certain markets and we're like we want to be on that Mm -hmm. so there you go and the more operating systems you add the more we will be customizing but you know what brian i'm just going to say i kind of felt overwhelmed when i started whatsapp like we had to scale designs to all these things but i think it's made me such a better designer it's like really made me um, more intentional, thoughtful. I've been able to learn all these different, like how these different operating systems work, how people use them. It's I don't know. I think it's, it's really great. Marshall, does that ring true for you? Or do you feel 
I don't know. YouTube's actually sort of almost a hybrid, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> YouTube does some stuff on its own. Sometimes it crosses platform sort of metaphors. Uh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. It, it, in general, yeah, it's kind of its own language that is in between iOS and Android. It's more uh, closer to material than it is to, to iOS. But yeah, we don't have to do two sets of mocks or six sets of mocks. We, um, they're just different by platform. I guess maybe my last question then is, is it seems like you have to attract a certain kind of designer who is very detail oriented and perhaps extraordinarily patient when it comes to shipping product. Uh, How has the team sort of grown and changed since you've been there? Is it, is it a big team or has it been able to sort of remain small and hold on to those principles? Yeah, we've grown quite a bit, but it's still small in the grand scheme of things. I can't give you the numbers, Brian, but that's fine. (laughs) But yeah, we have been able to hold on to some of those principles because we've really put in a lot of effort, like as we've grown to recruit designers who would thrive in this kind of an environment and who would really enjoy this kind of work. So what are the characteristics that you look for? Like, how do you know that someone's well cut out for this? Okay. So one is they have to be a WhatsApp user. Mm -hmm. Two is they need to have a really high bar for interaction design and visual design uh, or craft. Now, it, it doesn't mean trendy. It can be trendy. It doesn't matter. But like just really good taste, mm-hmm. you know, really like polished work. Like that is really important. Mm-hmm. And then just really strong user empathy for someone, you know, just understanding building for users who are not like you, who are probably in like completely different markets, completely different cultural contexts you know, kind of stepping out of your comfort zone to understand that a little bit more. That's really important. And then like who can work really, really well with our PMs. So I honestly think WhatsApp has the best consumer PMs I've ever worked with, hands down. Designers and PMs, like literally, I would say, they almost lead product at WhatsApp. So it's like two sides of the same coin. And the PMs are extremely craft focused and super into the details. So we need that complement. We need designers to be that way as well. So that's a really high bar. It takes a lot of time to hire the right person, but I think it's worth it. Yeah, one of the things you were talking about earlier is how you don't have any educational stuff. You know, mm-hmm. this is how you use the app <laughs> things. Yeah, and, and looking through the app, there are very few icons that are unlabeled and those that aren't labeled are very obvious what they are. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, is there... Are you hiring people that are less likely to try and throw a bunch of bespoke crazy stuff at you that you have to fight down? Or are you more likely to hire somebody who is tends towards more like stock designs or more um, like more conservative? conservative. Yeah, exactly. No, I think we, we like having folks who have like crazy ideas. I think it just comes down to like when you're actually executing, making sure that whatever crazy idea we're doing actually works for all the like all the constraints that I mentioned earlier. So no, there's nothing like that. I mean, at the end of the day, it has to be intentional, right? If you're just like throwing out ideas and like doing quick things, moving on, that's probably not great. But I think if the work is super intentional, it's solving a real problem and we understand how it's solving a problem, I think it's fine. I mean, as you grow, I think it's good to have more diversity of thought and perspectives because what can happen is the small OG group can be the loudest, you know, mm-hmm. and then it can like sway the room yeah. in a way that we are comfortable with. And I think it's good to have people who can challenge that with other ideas or different viewpoints. So I'd say we're definitely open to like both. 
cool. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like YouTube. We have, I feel like a tooltip pops up, up every few seconds. Like, hey, here's how you use this thing. Double tap to seek. Swipe up on this thing. Swipe up there. <laughs> tap here and then tap. Up. Yeah, it's like, and some of that's pretty cool. Like double tap to seek is a really great feature. I use it constantly, but like yeah. there's education that sticks around forever to tell you how to use that thing. It's just part of the app now. I agree. I think we do use tooltips very sparingly. So for example, if you tapped on the the push to talk, the voice message mm-hmm, icon, mm-hmm. and you just held it down and didn't know what to do, you'll get it. It just it just assumes you're trying to use it. So you tapped it accidentally, you'll see a tooltip that comes up and says, tap to hold to record your message, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, so we use, okay, yeah. that's nice. So it's done in a very like intentional way. So it's not like we don't do tooltips at all. It mm-hmm. has to be like, based on your trigger, not so much. You got close, yeah. let us help you get the rest of the way. Yep. Yeah, I I just think WhatsApp is a fascinating product because it is so simple. It has remained so simple for so long, which most products cannot say for themselves. And it just works really well. So keep doing what you're doing. It's uh, really great work. And I'm excited, you know, hopefully uh, we'll get some new stuff in in 2021 that we can play with and, and, and talk about in the future. Uh, But for now, maybe let's wrap with cool things and get you out of here. You go first. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Marshall, you go first. I'll go first, yeah. Um, So I've been playing a game during the break uh, outside Mm -hmm. of the obvious games, but uh, I I picked up this game a little while ago. It's called The Pedestrian, and it reminds me a lot of The Witness. Brian, did you ever play The Witness, Priyanka? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nope. Uh, Nope. Puzzle game. It's like a puzzle game and the puzzles are kind of in a larger world. The difference here is that instead of it being kind of a, a an overworld that you go around and, and do puzzles in, and it's kind of like an open world thing with just puzzles in it, this is more like you are the guy in the exit sign, you know, the little stick figure dude, and, uh, uh-huh. and, and it's a platformer puzzle game where you are on signs, moving through the environment, jumping from sign to sign, progressing through the game and, and there's a full 3d background and that you're that you're moving through and the camera slides from place to place but uh, it's a really fun little puzzle game i think it's only about four hours I, I started playing it earlier today i put in a couple hours into it and it's a lot of fun so um if you want a quick little pc game that is it's pretty but it's also achievably hard if that makes sense it's like achievably mm-hmm. difficult like every time you see a puzzle you're like wait, what the fuck? And and then after looking at it for you know a minute or so, you're like, oh, okay, I think I know what I need to do now. I need to figure out how to do it, right? And it's just a, a series of those. I'm watching, they have a couple GIFs on, on their Steam mm-hmm. directory page mm-hmm. so I can get a sense of what you're talking about. This looks buck wild. Like you have to manipulate the world around the signs as well. It's yeah. not about just navigating the signs. Yeah, yeah. Like the the signs are on these like cards, like signs and you're in, sometimes you need to move them around and connect doors from one sign to the next or ladders from one sign to the next, but you can only do it one time and once you've set that connection, if you break the connection, you have to start over. So it's like it, it, it's it's like I said, it's it's achievably difficult, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, Fascinating. Yeah, That's the pedestrian. And I guess maybe you should say there's a, a free demo. It says there's a free demo, and otherwise it's 20 bucks. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's not a full price thing. Like I said, it's only four hours, but yeah. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Very much enjoying it. It's a, it's a good forget about the world, just do some puzzles type of game. <laughs> I love those. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian, you want to go next? Uh, sure. Mine is not interesting this week. <laughs> 
uh, mine's work related. I will recommend a book. I read this in November or December. I don't know. I, I'm a fan of Basecamp, the company, and this is a company that might be controversial for some people just because they have really outspoken sort of founders and leaders, uh, especially on Twitter. But anyways, one of their employees, Ryan Singer, he's been there for a long, long time. He wrote this book last year called Shape Up. I think it was originally just like a long series of blog posts that eventually kind of coalesced into a book. And it's really just about sort of product development and how to ship products at work. Like how do you take these big questions about what you want to do at a company or with a product and make it happen in a sequence of, of logical steps. And, you know, a lot of companies sort of operate differently and certainly it's different between startups and big companies, small teams, big teams. And maybe the type of product changes the, changes the way you prioritize things. But anyways, ShapeUp is sort of Basecamp's philosophy for it, which is interesting. I, I recommend it for designers who are interested in roadmap planning or, or product management. It's really about how do we break up work into meaningful chunks? How do we decide our priorities, what's risky or not? How do we measure success? And how do we sort of delegate uh, the appropriate amount of work to the right size of teams so we don't just have everybody working on one tiny feature and conversely having very few people working on the most important thing. So yeah, I don't know. It's a book. I read it. It's been sitting on my desk. I keep referring to it. And so if something lives in my brain for that long, I figure it deserves a cool <laughs> shout out. So uh, it's called Shape Up. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. Nice. That's pretty cool. All right, Priyanka, hit us. Ooh, okay. So um, can I say two things? Sure. Yes. Cool You're things. allowed okay. this very special <laughs> we'll, privilege. We'll give you two. <laughs> <laughs> okay all right so one is bon appetit website oh yeah i think it's super cool because i've like really gotten into i've, I've always liked cooking but i've been doing it a lot more over the pandemic and looking for like just you know some change and just trying new things and the thing i'm just hooked to that website because you can go in there put the you know, just put the names of the ingredients you have and it'll like spit out all these recipes hmm. for you and they're like so oh. interesting and different things I would never try. Hmm. And then I can make my meal plan and go buy them and make them. So I think that is really cool. One of my favorite internet personalities is Claire from the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. If you've ever watched those oh. things where she tries to recreate candy, but gourmet. Like, oh, I, think, wow. I think the oh, series. Yeah, that was one of your cool things a long time ago. A long, ago. long time ago. Yeah. Gourmet makes blank uh, Twizzlers or, or Skittles or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Priyanka, are you on Bon Appetit's YouTube? No, I should get on it. You are missing out. Wow. (laughs) Three cool things. (laughs) Awesome. No, I'm going to have to do that. Like, I haven't basically watched TV in months, so I should definitely do this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Yep. And my second cool thing, this is just like something I think I end up doing every year just organically is, have you guys watched Steve Jobs' Lost Interview on YouTube? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From 1995. Mm-hmm. Is that the one where he has the bicycle of the mind quote? Like, is it that one? He's had that in a couple of interviews, I think. So this one is specifically 1995. I don't know if he says it in that. I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. I feel like I've seen excerpts from it. Anyways, continue. I was just saying like, it gets me fired up. I watch somehow end up watching it every time before like the new year, like before going to work. And it's a really good one. So I definitely, I think it's, I don't know. Every time I, hear, I I watch it, I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. Like, you know, yes, this is how I'm going to operate. So it's it's pretty neat. Is there anything in particular that you find inspiring or, or want to hear over and over again? 
Yeah, I think it's just like the product thinking side of things and like building the right thing. And like he talks a lot about craft and taste. And he has this really interesting example of apparently one of his neighbors had this rock polishing machine or something. And they put like a ton of these rough rocks in it. And the next day when he went back to see it, they were like beautifully polished and smooth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he relates that to design and um, the, the user experience of product experiences. And I don't know, all of it just comes together so nicely. I'm like, oh, it just like gets you all ready for the new year. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. I Yeah, I don't think I've ever watched this all the way through. I'll have this queued up. Thank you. Yep, yep. The one I found starts with a screen capture of a YouTube page. So it's like... Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm on right yeah, now. Too. A little bit uh, Inception-y there. Well, the, yeah, oh, this one was... interesting. This might be just like a sort of bootleg upload. Oh, yeah, de definitely. Yeah, recursive sure. upload of an upload. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the one. That is the one, I think, because I might have even at one point paid for it. Wow. To watch okay. it once okay. or something. I, or might have it in my purchase list. I don't know. Hour 12. Um, well, awesome, yeah. It's a nice long chunk of content, 70 minutes. It's pretty cool. Like, I mean, there's a lot of cynicism and stuff in there, but it's still like very inspiring. It's, I think it's a net inspiration, like net, net inspiration. Okay. <laughs> net positive for the we'll world. Everyone it. go watch. I'll take it. Cool. Awesome. Well, Priyanka, it's been great. Absolute Thank you pleasure. for coming Thank on the show. Thank you. Yeah. It's been awesome catching up with you too. Yeah. All right. This has been episode 380 of the Design Details Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. Uh, if you did enjoy it, uh, be sure to tweet at Priyanka. We'll have a link to Priyanka's Twitter handle in the show notes. Go follow her. Tweet at us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, if you have questions for us that we can answer in the future, you can ask a listener question on our GitHub at github.com slash design details. Otherwise, uh, that's it. And we'll catch you next week. All right, folks. Take care and keep it simple. All right, folks, take care and keep it simple. Bye. Hey. Hey. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Cool.